Good evening. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that we can gather together. Thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that uh, even tonight as we open your word, uh, help us to have uh, receptive, open hearts. Uh, help us to understand uh, your word and help us to receive uh, the instruction within it gladly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought this evening we would look at uh, rivers in the desert. And it's quite appropriate that today it feels like a desert. When was the last time you decided to give a room a fresh look? When you thought, the walls, these walls need a fresh coat of paint. Picture the satisfaction of holding a paintbrush, choosing a colour, and seeing the space transform. Though it might seem ordinary, a room can look as good as new with a can of paint and a good brush and some skill. Just as a fresh coat of paint can renew a room, God has a way of bringing newness in each of our lives. But here's the twist. Our lives aren't just painted over. It's a much deeper transformation than that. In our passage tonight, here in Isaiah, we see that God, in his wisdom and love, is closely involved in transforming lives for good. You'll see on your outline three points. First, the importance of forgetting or not dwelling on the past. Second, God's power to transform into something new. And thirdly, the unwavering assurance that God always makes a way. So Isaiah chapter 43. <clears throat> Though this message in Isaiah was delivered to the people of Israel by the prophet Isaiah, it's relevant to us today because of the principles of God's unchanging character. As always, proper interpretation of scripture requires that we carefully observe who is speaking and who is being addressed by the text. Many of these principles we read even here in Isaiah can be found repeated for Christians throughout the Bible. If we look at just one passage, it could be dangerous because we might miss the broader context. We might miss the full picture of God's plan of redemption. I recently learnt where the term cherry picking comes from. The cherry picker only takes the reddest, ripest cherries. If someone looked at all the cherries that were picked, they might think cherries are always red. But if you look at the tree, you'll see a vast variety of shades. Likewise, in order to make a point, I might be tempted to cherry pick a passage just to show the reddest, ripest parts of a topic. But this can be dangerous. That's why in the outline before you, I've put together with the verses from Isaiah some parallels from the New Testament to show that the Bible has a consistent message of God's unchanging character. We read in Isaiah 43, Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, 
and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. We read here God's unchanging sovereignty. But that's not all. We also read in Ephesians that we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we can be sure that God's plan to redeem his people is relevant to us because we, as guilty sinners, have redemption through Christ's blood. Here's another example. In verse 25, we read of God's forgiveness of sins. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. We read in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The verse from 1 John, the verse from Isaiah, both reinforces the forgiving character of God. Tonight, I trust that we'll have open hearts of faith and receptive to God, who not only forgives our sins, but makes all things new and makes a way for us. So first, forgetting the past. Forgetting the past doesn't mean amnesia. It doesn't mean we completely wipe our memory. In verse 18, the Lord commands, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. This isn't a call to erase or remove our memories, but it's an invitation to us all to not let our past hinder our future. Philippians 3.13 tells us this too. Brethren, Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto these things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What kind of past are we talking about here? Could be past sins. It could be past failures. Maybe it's regret or resentment. Often we carry the heavy burden of past decisions and missed opportunities or hurts inflicted by others. The Bible makes mention of remembering the past. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth. But we must be careful how we remember our past. It takes a spiritual toll on our life if we allow ourselves to think on the details of our past. It's not that we try to deny our past, for we hope that these sins that have been confessed, that they are under the blood. But we must be careful when our past comes up. Maybe someone says something about their life that re reminds us, or a message brings out something in our lives, something in our past. If The more we dwell on the details, the more it can rob us of the promises and provisions of Christ's atonement. If the mind is stayed on God, we read there'll be perfect peace. Isaiah 26, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. But if our minds are stayed on how dark or how bad or how terrible our past was, 
will have no peace. We won't be able to grow with God. It can blind. It can cause a denial of the grace of God, at least for that moment. We can acknowledge or learn from the past without allowing it to define or dictate our present and our future. But it couldn't just be the negative things. It can also be the successes of our past, the achievements, the positive things. But the Bible is clear. Forget those too. Don't let them hinder your future. Run the race and don't turn back. That's what the Apostle Paul means in Philippians 3. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. The athlete does not bring up and dwell on every early misstep or even the record-breaking lapse along the way. To run the race well, they must dismiss every distraction. They mustn't look back. Don't let anything behind you interfere with your present and your future. Mentally rehearsing either the conflicts or successes of your past, whatever they may be, and the sins that trip us up in a web of guilt and shame, these things slow us down. Christian life is lived with our hearts and minds focused on Jesus Christ. Our highest goal is to know him better. Paul said earlier in chapter 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul doesn't write that I might know more my past. He doesn't write that I might know more of what I've done or what I haven't done. He writes that I may know him, Jesus Christ. Not only is there mention of the past, but we also see how God works in the now. Isaiah 43.25 assures us of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is a powerful motivation for us to forget the past. If God chooses not to remember our sins, then why should we cling to them? Forgetting doesn't negate accountability, but through Christ, through the gospel, there is forgiveness. And dwelling on the past will hinder our spiritual growth. Philippians 3.13 emphasises the forward-looking nature of forgiveness. There can be no true forgiveness while there is dwelling on the past. Once forgiven, we are encouraged to let go of the weight of our sins and our past and focus on the transforming power of God's grace. Forgetting about the past is about pressing toward the mark. It's about a positive, hopeful, Christ-focused growth and purpose that God has set before us. God alone is the source of our salvation, and God alone is the supplier of our growth. The closer we get to completing the race, the more we realise how much further we still need to go to become like Christ. But we must not look back. If we do, we'll feel that burden once again of the weight of the past. When Isaiah says, remember ye not the former things, he's saying, trust in God and press forward, knowing that he is in control. But then we keep reading of a new thing in verse 19. We read of God's promise here, behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? 
In Hebrew, the word for new thing is kadash. It refers to something new, something fresh. God was telling them not to look back on the old stories or dwell on them too much. Instead, God wanted them to look forward. He wanted them to build their hope on what he would do for them in the future. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we see this reality for all Christians. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So, is a new thing something that just happens once? The answer is no. In God's promise of doing a new thing, it is not merely a single coat of paint on the wall, nor is it just a fleeting change that fades with time. It's a continual, transforming work that changes our life from inside to outside. This new thing covers the riches of God's grace for you and for I. It's not merely about new hearts, though that is part of God's promise. Ezekiel 36 speaks of God giving his people a new heart and putting a new spirit within. But it's a transformation from the inside out, a renewal that goes beyond superficial changes. God's new thing is the process of sanctification for your hearts. Similarly, it's not just about new salvation, though that is at the heart of God's redemptive plan. It goes beyond that moment of salvation. Again, it's the ongoing process. It's God's commitment to mould us into the likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ. It's the daily renewal of minds and hearts and the continual transformation in your life. The process of sanctification is lifelong for the Christian. Why? Because it involves the renewal of the entire person, mind, heart, actions. It's the cultivation of new Christ-like habits. Of course, there are old habits and strongholds that must be broken. There are external influences. There are external values and temptations contrary to God's word, seeking to challenge our spiritual growth. There's also the old sin nature battling away, preferring complacency over growth. And that's why we are constantly reminded to surrender daily, rely daily on Jesus Christ for his strength. True biblical sanctification recognises that God's promises aren't just about changing circumstances around us, but also transforming us into vessels for his glory. As we contemplate this new thing, I trust that we'll see the depth of God's grace and surrender to the ongoing work that he has in store. Let me use an example that the scriptures often uses too to describe this new thing or new life. Consider with me a well-tended garden. When a gardener first plants a seed, it marks the beginning of a process. However, the growth of the garden unfolds over time. It requires continuous care, attention, cultivation. Similarly, God's new thing in our lives is like the ongoing process. First, we have the seed. Just as a seed is planted with the hope of future growth, our salvation establishes that transformation. 
But the gardener doesn't just plant the seed and walk away. Ongoing care is crucial. Similarly, God's transformative work in our lives involves continuous cultivation through his word, through communion with him, and through guidance of the Holy Spirit. A garden experiences different seasons, some vibrant and fruitful, others challenging and dormant, without fruit. Likewise, our lives go through seasons of joy, trial, growth, and rest. God's new thing cultivates the adaptability and resilience that we we need for each season. Furthermore, a skilled gardener prunes to remove unnecessary branches, allowing the plant to focus its energy on fruitful areas. God's sanctifying work in us involves pruning away habits, attitudes, or circumstances that hinder our growth. Finally, there's the evidence of transformation. Ultimately, the purpose of a garden is harvest, a tangible outcome of growth. In our lives, the new thing results in the harvest of spiritual fruits, reflecting God's work in our character, in our relationships, and impact on the world. I hope that this illustrates that God's transformative work is not singular, it's not an event or a moment in time, but it's a lifelong process. It involves continual cultivation, adapting to seasons, pruning for fruitfulness, yielding a harvest that testifies to his ongoing sanctifying grace. But you might say at this point, it's all well and good to desire a life of sanctification. But why does God require lifelong sanctification? Couldn't an all-powerful God simply change us instantly? Why the need for ongoing sanctification? Brethren, the key is to understand our present reality and the future glory that awaits us all. That's the gospel. Justification, sanctification, and in the future, glorification. Let's turn, please, to 2 Corinthians We'll be reading in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, but before that, let me just paint a picture of where we're at here. In this epistle, the Apostle Paul opens by encouraging the church with God's comfort amidst affliction. He reflects on his own trials in Asia. He says at the beginning of the, uh, at the, beginning of the book, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul testified of human weakness and God's solace in intense hardship. He said, by faith ye stand. Those are his very words. In the Greek, the word stand is perfect, indicative. It means it started in the past, but it continues on. Instant perfection doesn't allow us to genuinely recognize our dependence on God's strength in our weakness, nor would it grow our faith, our posture to stand firm. Later on in chapter 3, Paul writes about the ministry of the Spirit. 
he highlights the glory of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The Gospel transforms lives, Paul writes. He says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. God, by the Spirit, has opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ, his holiness, his beauty, his truth. As we behold him, we are being changed into his image. So the key to being like Christ is to look to Christ. As Paul continues into chapter 4, he likens believers to earthen vessels, jars of clay, resilient in perseverance through challenges, that the excellency of the power of God may be of him and not of us. Paul contrasts temporary afflictions with the eternal glory. Sanctification prepares believers for the future glory that has not happened yet. And now we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this, our bodies we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. This is the answer. Our bodies are temporal, transient. They're not going to last. God has prepared us for this very thing and has given us his spirit as a guarantee, as a seal. Verse 5, the earnest of the spirit. This is crucial. It's evidence of God's active involvement in the believer's life. Consider a child that is just born. He or she already has all the physical features they will one day have as an adult, but they're not there yet. Already and not yet. That's like our spiritual journey as a new creation in Christ. We already have spiritual limbs and faculties that though imperfect now, will one day be perfected, but not yet. Our struggle with sin and pain and weakness and trials can leave us feeling like spiritual toddlers, living in a world that's not yet fully comprehensible. Between our newness in Christ and our ongoing battle with sin, we find echoes of Paul's own experience. Later in chapter 12, we read that Paul prays multiple times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh. And what was God's reply? He said this in chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a profound comfort. Brethren, remember the reality that, like Paul, we may carry burdens we desire God to remove. Yet, in living through it, we can discover our confidence lies not in our perfection, but in God's perfecting power. Being a new creation doesn't mean having an absence of sin, but it's a transformation in progress. The Apostle Paul himself exclaims that the old has passed away and the new has come, yet the fullness of our glorification awaits. Paul acknowledges that we live in a world stained with sin, and instant perfection doesn't align with the realities of our lives. It would need to address not only our individual moral choices, but then how do we relate to other imperfect people who are also stained with sin. So brethren, let go of the old and cling to Jesus. And in doing so, 
Beware of using our identity in Christ, a new creature, as an excuse for complacency or sin. Look beyond into eternity and have the full perspective of the gospel. While our ultimate hope is certain, we're called now to be stewards of God's opportunities and gifts. While our ultimate hope is certain, every decision we make now is an opportunity to honour God and live in joyful anticipation of our future. While our ultimate hope is certain, our present obedience now is a pathway to joy and a life more abundant. While our ultimate hope is certain, living faithfully now, serving others, sharing the gospel, has a meaningful and intentional impact on the lives of others and fulfills God's promises for every believer. But back in Isaiah, we read on in verse 19, God says, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Even in the most barren and challenging wilderness of life, God has the power to create a path and provide sustenance. God provides relief for the thirsty, rest for the weary, hope for the lost. When Israel was to be released from captivity in Babylon, they'd have to walk through the wilderness to get from Babylon back to Judah. For a people coming out of slavery, this wasn't going to be easy. They'd be battling open country, hot, dry and dusty land with little vegetation. They'd have to deal with wild animals, no food, little water, and enemies who could and would attack them. God had done this before for the Israelites when they were escaping Egypt, but this time would be different. God would do it in a way they could never have imagined. God would ensure that during their journey back home, no harm would come to them. They'd be guided and protected. God was going to create a highway to make their journey just a little easier. When Israel were first released from Egypt, God provided for their needs. We're even reminded here in Isaiah 43. When they had a problem with water, he created dry land. When they were thirsty, he gave them water. They were struggling to trust him, so he showed up in a cloud by day and fire by night. He gave them what they needed at that time, what power and what mercy. Now, centuries later, the Israelites had different issues, so God provided a new way. They were stubborn, so he sent them consequences to turn their hearts. They're going to cross the wilderness, so he created a way. They'd have to deal with too much dry land, so he had plans to provide water. The desert for us can be challenges, difficulties, situations in our lives that seem impossible to overcome. It could be a tough season, a personal struggle, or an obstacle that seems impossible. When the passage says God makes a way, it means that even in the toughest and seemingly impossible situations, God provides a way forward. It's like discovering a clear and safe route right through the middle of a desert. No matter how tough life can get, God has the power to create a way through the difficulties we face. God knows what we need for every season. And don't forget this, God is all-knowing and all-wise. 
His will is carefully measured and always for your good and my good, even when it may not be evident. God can intervene. He is always able to make a way. Not only is God able to make a way in spiritual dryness, but he's able to make a way in spiritual darkness. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there in your outline, provides this assurance. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. This verse assures believers that God is faithful in providing a way through the darkest temptation or trial. The verse in 1 Corinthians tells us that there is a purpose. God's provision of a way isn't merely to avoid challenges, but to empower believers to bear up under trials through Christ. It's an invitation to rely on Christ, to look to Christ. It's a prompting, a guide to growth. So brethren, trust in God's plan, for he has a plan, whether making a way in the dry or making a way through the dark. The underlying theme is to trust in God's wisdom and control over all. Get grounded in the promises of God found in his word and draw strength from his past faithfulness. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. God makes a way for you personally. He accommodates your and my unique weaknesses. He addresses our unique stubbornness. He uses our unique consequences to turn our hearts. Just as God provided a way through the Red Sea during Israel's exodus, so would he provide rivers in the desert for them on their return from exile. The Lord would provide all that they needed to leave Babylon and re-establish their home in the promised land. Even when there appeared to be no way, God made a way. The picture of rivers in the desert is a common one in the scripture. In Isaiah 41, we read the Lord promises his people that in their frailty he will supply. He says, I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. In Psalm 126, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Jesus Christ himself uses the same phrase when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Brethren, God promises you rivers in the desert. Be assured that even in your moments of great need, he will provide in great abundance. God cares and God provides personally. Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Remember ye not. Behold, I will do a new thing, an ongoing thing. It shall spring forth, shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness, a way for you and a way for me, and rivers in the desert. 
In the Bible, we read of a man called Job, who had an astounding, steadfast faith in God, even withstanding the loss of his family, possessions, health. Job lived out Philippians 3.13 and 14. He forgot those things which were behind, and he reached forth unto the things that were before him. Consider this. Job didn't have written promises we find now in the Bible. Unlike us, Job didn't have the Psalms for comfort, the Proverbs for wisdom, the stories of God's faithfulness in Abraham's life. Yet, Job's unwavering faith was rooted in prayer and trust in God. It proved to be more than sufficient because, because God's grace was more than sufficient. There's nothing extraordinary, perhaps, about rivers in the rainforest, but rivers in the desert. Now that's remarkable, and that is extraordinary, and that is glorifying to God. In Philippians, the opening of that book, Paul tells us that he is in bonds in Christ. Brethren, poor circumstances and our circumstances reveal where our joy is. Today we must acknowledge the abundance that we have in Christ. We have the written word of God. We have the testimony of countless believers. We have churches to gather in and live life with. We have hymns and spiritual songs to encourage and remind. So, dwell not on the things of the past and embrace the reality of being a new creature in Christ. Let the ongoing process of sanctification be our commitment before God because we have a future glorification that awaits. And let us trust in his faithful provision, recognizing that God is always able to make a way through, through the dry, through the dark. Remember that the God who made a way for Israel is the same God working in our lives today. May his transforming grace be our strength, for God knows the way from the past to present to future. We'll now close with a few words of a hymn that we'll sing shortly. He knoweth the way. O Lord, thou art my king, and who am I to question thy way? Whatever the loss, whatever the cost, draw me closer to thee every day. O Lord, thou art my life, and who am I to understand why? You died on a tree for a sinner like me. Lord, to self, make me willing to die. Lord, thou art my all, and who am I to walk without thee? My sin I forsake, thy cross I will take, thy servant, dear Lord, make of me. He knoweth the way I take, a new heart within me he'll create, that I may walk worthy and come forth as gold. He giveth and he taketh away. Amen. Let's take our hymn books. Oh, sorry. I think the words will be on the screen. It's not in the hymn book. And uh, thank you, Ben.